Hey, it's Michael, and welcome to another podcast episode. Before I get into today's episode, we wanted to make an offer to you. If you go to firmsconsulting.com, you will see a pop-up or you'll see a place to add in your email address or you can register on the Firms Consulting website. If you register onto that website, you get put into an exclusive list. And what you get in that exclusive list is samples of the content we have available to FC Insiders. So that said, I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Welcome, Mike. It's great to be here. Fantastic. So we've got a lot of interesting things to talk about, right? So I've been looking at some of the work your company is doing and your background as well. And one of the things that struck me is this idea you have about bringing data science to assembling teams that can go on to win in their respective leagues, categories, and spaces, and so on. You know, when I was reading some of your work, I was remembering that movie Hardball, I think it was, or the book Hardball by, um, it's about the baseball team. Moneyball. Moneyball, that's the one, Moneyball, right? That's right. And I was that's reading right. the work you guys do, I was thinking this sounds a lot like Moneyball, right? It really is Moneyball for business. It's and Moneyball for business, I like that. That's a good catchphrase. It, business is 30 years behind sport at, at actually using data and analytics to build world-class teams. Wow, Mike, you just made a lot of people in business hate you with that statement. But it's probably true, <laughs> well, right? The, well, hopefully the consultants are excited because <laughs> they get to spend some time getting the businesses back up to speed. But that's a powerful thing to say. But when you say that, you find to the fact things like the football league, the European soccer leagues and so on, they've been using cameras, they've been using rangefinders and all kinds of fancy tools to collect data and manage their talent, right? 30 years ago, you know, baseball scouts would go to an actual stadium and watch the players play. And they would look for the five tools of, of baseball. And, you know, I know this is an international podcast and not everyone has baseball as a, as a pastime. Yes. But, you know, the five tools of baseball are running ability, throwing ability, fielding ability, hitting for power and hitting for average. Yeah. And they would... They would qualitatively, and when they could, quantitatively measure these things. And if you had the five tools 30 years ago, they would say, kid, you're gonna be a star. And they were, they were wrong most of the time. Only five out of 100 recruited baseball players 30 years ago got into the, into the major leagues. And today, those same scouts with yeah. a massive discipline change are looking at data and analytics, computer terminals. They're sitting in the bowels of their own you know, headquarters trying to uncover statistics that are going to predict, you know, world-class talent and high-performing teams for the dollar. And it's interesting, in sport, we as humans are so much more brutal to our, our teams. You know, if someone has a bad yes. weekend, we're like, fire them. Exactly. Get someone else. Yeah. But in business, we work with average people all the time for maybe 5, 10, 20 years. And we don't have the same rigor, discipline, analytics, and in, in fact, brutality. Now, you've done something very interesting for me. What you've done is you've equated people like LeBron James as employees, which is what they are, right? They're just very highly paid employees, but they are effectively employees. I mean, they're superstars. They work very hard, but they're employees. But let's just step back, right? Let's step out of this for a minute, because what you're saying is that we know intuitively that certain employees like LeBron James, uh, Lewis Hamilton, who races Formula One, we know that we need to employ data, the most refined data possible to manage them and get the best out of them, right? So why is it that when we start having these discussions of employees, 
issues like privacy and so on come up? Well, I think privacy is a very sensitive topic and differs from country to country. Two of the metrics that we measure, as an example, behavioral analytics and cognitive capabilities. Right. In Europe, they are less sensitive about cognitive capabilities and more sensitive about behavioral yes. analytics and dynamics. And in the United States, it's reversed where we are very open yeah. with behavioral data, yes. but very closed on cognitive data. And so you can't give one answer, you know, across, yes. across the globe with respect to sensitivity to data, you know, South Africa, Brazil, Sweden, these are three countries with, yeah. with much stricter psychometric rules, which are tied into their histories, each of those countries' histories. But I think with privacy and data, we try and keep the data appropriately sure. you know, private so that people can still use the data to manage, um, but not break into personally identifiable information. Well, that um, makes sense. Because I mean... It, it's important. You don't want someone to know your cognitive scores floating yes. about the internet saying, well, it turns out that Mike Zani's not as smart as we thought he was. <laughs> yeah. You know, that's, that's not going to be good for business, Mike. <laughs> no, it's not. But, but, but let's just think about this, right? Because your work has got me thinking about what is the future of work, right? So you're familiar with the Myers-Briggs test. It was very popular. It's very big in management consulting. Everyone goes through that evaluation and everyone is basically managed according to that profile, right? It's well known. I'm sure you guys use it as one of your tools or you build off it, right? But it's the future. Ironically, you, you, my wife has been teaching MBTI yeah. to Bain & Company for the last 20 years. That and, is a bit surprising. Yeah, <laughs> the, the largest data set of MBTI and consultants probably in the world uh, resides in her data systems and sets. And we've talked about it. So we're a dual psychometric yeah. household. I'm more of the, the PI expert and she is more of the MBTI expert. And these tools are so important to assembling teams. When you think about a yeah. high performing company like Bain & Company, yes. where you have partners and managers who are quickly assembled onto work teams, project teams, and they, they're throwing new associates and consultants on here and they're mixing up all the time. And they have to quickly learn how to become a super high performing team and perform at a high level in front of the client live. Yeah. Um, these tools really help people design and redesign and reassemble teams almost spontaneously and still keep high performance. Yeah, and it works very well, right? Because I've used it in my career as a consulting partner and so on, and it, it works for us. But my question for you is this, MBTI is quite old and it's been around for a very long time. It's very effective. And as you said, your wife is using it. It works very well. Now I notice software companies have, pi have pioneered, I think maybe is the correct word, this ability to track what people are doing and use that information to guide them in terms of their performance. And I still think that has some way to go, but what's the next step? And I don't mean this in a, in a facetious way, but is the next step being able to maybe use cameras and so on to see how employees work? Because I know that happens in some factory facilities around the world. But, but what's the next evolution in terms of how we use data? Well, the biggest gap we have in business is quality of performance data. So quality when we go back to sport, or let's take your Lewis Hamilton mm -hmm. um, example, you know, Formula One. Yeah. The, those cars and the sensors mm -hmm. all over those vehicles they can determine if Lewis is having a good day or a bad day 
with respect to his response time, how often he might be spinning the tires, very nuanced data, very nuanced data. We don't have that same data. So if person X who's working at a manufacturing company is having a bad day, we don't have that level of performance data. Now, there are industries, you know, the Toyota production system, where they measure quite a bit when they're manufacturing cars that have better, better than most. But our sports franchises have so much better data and access to performance data and stats and statistics that, and analytics on those stats, they are able to take what are the drivers of performance. In business, it is so infrequent that we're doing performance reviews that sometimes you might be getting annual 360s. Yeah, that's right. And these things are, are often subjective, not as objective, not as analytical and quantitative. So we need to come leaps and bounds with the ease with which we can get data, performance data on, on individuals, on individuals in jobs, on yeah. individuals and team performance. So until we get better performance data, we're not going to be able to make the correlations that we're going to need to make in order to uh, optimize performance the way we want to. And when we use the example of Lewis Hamilton or let's say a, you know, the All Blacks rugby team, it's, it's very clear what is the objective measure of success for Lewis Hamilton, right? He's got to win a race. He's got to be ahead of, in terms of lap time. But when you are looking at the entire workforce where people have very different outcomes for their roles, I'm guessing you know, think you have to have different ways of collecting that data. It's just not one uniform set of data points that you need, which makes it even harder to collect. So it sounds as if it's a fertile ground for new work here. Yeah. Uh, very much so. And there are jobs that we do. If you take yeah. um, you know, food service and hospitality, uh, you even take, uh, you take healthcare, where outcomes, you, know, you can measure healthcare in, in outcomes. You know, mm-hmm. This hospital has better outcomes on this procedure than that hospital. Yes. Certainly, you can drive to key data. For most businesses that don't have as clear of outcomes as that, you're going to have to really look at you know, tying this to you know, objectives, key results, and the metrics which provide that in order to really refine what you're doing. Now, a lot of companies aren't ready for that. Yes. You know, there's still, unfortunately, with respect to the world of talent, most of us are doing unstructured interviewing, yeah. you know, predominantly focused on resumes and with very little advice. training yeah. and bringing in the conscious and unconscious bias that, that we all have. But the problem with that is you can't scale it, right? No, there, you, you can't scale it at all. And there are great interviewers, you know, if human-based interviewing... Uh, is, you know, is going to scale linearly with bodies, which is not a terribly uh, scalable model or cost effective. I remember for one of the private equity investments we did, which was an automotive design studio in Italy, we had the idea of installing these high resolution cameras throughout the entire factory floor. So we could observe what employees were doing and we could categorize and document what were the steps for the highest performing employees. You know, the trouble you ran into very quickly there were privacy issues. You know, as you spoke about privacy is very nuanced by region and so on. So, you know, there's all these difficulties you face. But just stepping back a second here, right? How does this company even know they are using data effectively to assemble their teams and bring out the best from their employees? As a starting point, if a CEO 
or a consulting partner or an executive is listening to you, what kind of self-evaluation should they be doing? Well, with, certainly with the executive, the most important thing that when I'm speaking to an executive is get them to know themselves. There's mm-hmm. an element of self-awareness so that they can be self-aware of the role they play within their team. Uh, after the self-awareness discussion, which depending on the person could be very quick or could be 90 minutes, we then talk about all of their direct reports. And the reason I use their direct reports, and sometimes we, we do use their board so it's who they report to, yes. to talk about the joys and frustrations of the team that they're on, because it's very personal. And that when you can show them that you're able to predict the joys and frustrations that they have, given the data sets that we have, they're, all of a sudden you get buy-in. They go, how did you know this person yes. frustrates me in this way? And then once, once you understand team dynamic, you, you determine, is it a homogenous team? Is it a heterogeneous team? Are there gaps? Who are the outliers? And how do we make sure that those outliers can feel comfortable? We then determine, is that team a good fit for the work that needs to be done or the strategy that they have in place? Because a team is not inherently good or bad. Lewis Hamilton is a fantastic race car driver, but he might be completely average at golf. Mm -hmm. And if you took his top five people on his pit crew, and said, okay, now you're the caddy and you're, you're playing golf, they would be horrible at that, so, yeah. or might be. So we really need to find out, it starts self-awareness, then team and team dynamic, and then is that team a good fit for the role? Now, this is still before we enter performance data. Yes, I was to just say, about to how say is the, How is that team? Well, there's such low-hanging fruit in the world of business because we're just getting started on this money ball for business paradigm. This is pretty interesting because what you're saying is we were talking about sensors and so on. Before we even get to that step, there's a lot of value we can create by just starting to manage teams and assemble teams based on data about behavior and personalities, right? Uh, as well as, as, as cognitive. And you, cognitive. You need, cognitive is important for speed of learning, managing complexity. There's also a bit of cognitive diversity. You may be be exceptional at, at mathematics mm-hmm. and maybe I'm good at abstract reasoning and spatial Yes, and maybe we make a good match um, and maybe we're like, whoa, both of us have a gap in verbal. Let's get someone who's a better communicator, which is going to capture uh, and document what we're doing so that we can actually create some cognitive diversity as we mash up these teams and recreate teams. So what I'm hearing you say, and once you start using the data and you're saying there's low-hanging fruit there, right? But once you start using this data, you need someone who is using this data to put a team together, almost like an, ar- maybe arbitrator is the wrong word, but there has to be someone using the data to assemble the team and think of whether the team needs to stay in this formation, bring in new members, change members, and so on. So that's a central role, right? Oh, it's, it's hugely important. But if, if you think that a modern organization is 65% yeah. of their income statement, Yes. Is people or people related? Labor costs. Yeah. What you just basically said, you oh, you mean someone should be in charge of 65% of your income statement? You, but you'd laugh. You'd say, of course someone should be in charge of optimizing 65% of the income statement. But companies don't I do mean, that. That's laughable. They just have an HR department for yeah. recruiting, but do they actually go out and optimize it as much as they should once they finish recruiting? I think some companies do. But by and large, most companies we would find have lots of room for improvement. 
That's why it's such uh, it's such an important frontier that we're on. Is there there are high performing five, 10, 15 percent of companies are doing this, and they're not all doing it well, but they're yes. they're going down the path of doing it well. And if I get to talk to a CEO, yeah, the one question I ask them that gives me an indicator for this is, who does your chief people officer report to? Yeah, and if it's not to them, yeah, they're not probably. taking it as seriously as it needs to be. You know, if you think of the two most important people on an athletic club, yeah, it's going to be the coach, yeah, and the person who's in charge of talent development. It, it depends on the sport, but yeah. in baseball, it's the head of baseball operations. Mm -hmm. Those two people recruit the team and then get the players to play. So why wouldn't you have the same dynamic in business where the chief people officer doesn't report directly into the CEO? The CEO is probably not taking it as seriously as they should. Yeah, but I like the way you frame it, where you say that why do we not pay more attention to 65% of our income statement? That's a, that's a wonderful way of getting attention, I think. Yeah, and, and people... So I... We're so early in this process yeah. that I often have to carry a stick and whack yeah. CEOs in the head. So I'm like, every CEO has a strategy, yes. some good, some bad. Most have a financial plan between one and five years to support that strategy. Yes. Yet tragically few have a talent strategy, which is anything more than boxes in Excel. Sure. I'm gonna hire yeah. this many people in Q1. Yeah. So this, this third leg of the stool is missing and you know, th these strategies and financial plans don't execute themselves. People execute that. So this giant gap, this third leg of the stool in a modern organization is the talent optimization leg. Yes. How do we optimize talent for the work that we need to do? You know, you wrote a book and in that book you have an example, I think it was, the name of the coach is Pat Summit, I think it was, uh, the winningest yes. coach. Yes of all time. And the example you gave that I thought was quite profound, whereby she had a team, right? But each time her team played a different opponent or experienced a different uh, situation with that opponent, she needed to reassemble a team to know who she needed to send in, right? Now, when you think about it that way, a lot of times when companies recruit, they assume once you have the team, you don't need to manage them. Once you, once you bring in the, the best people in the world, you just throw them in, they'll figure it out. But what this lady showed us is that you can't just say we have 10,000 employees. You've got to break it down to the levels of individual teams. And you've got to have someone understanding the play that needs to be called and then which team member needs to be brought in for that. And the reason I'm bringing up this example is because it's a great example to show you how she used data, understanding who is a risk taker, who was not a risk taker and so on, but it also sounds a bit tiring to do this. Well, Pat Summit is the, or was, uh, may she rest in peace. Uh, she died early uh, with early onset Alzheimer's, but mm -hmm. she uh, was the winningest coach in NCAA history. Uh, that, that record is, has, has since been surpassed, but I don't think she would say that it was tiring to yes. be the winningest coach in no. NCAA history. Yeah. I think she was well rewarded. I, I, yeah, I, I think she says, you know, this is the level of detail that I take my craft to. And this story, Pat Summit, when she had a point guard who was risk intolerant, yeah, she wanted that point guard in the game when they were ahead. And she knew that she had to call the plays for that particular player. Whereas if she had a point guard who was risk tolerant, that's the point guard she wanted when she was behind. Yes. 
And she knew that that point guard needed to call, in this case, she was a female, her own plays. Using that level of analytics to know your players, to manage them the way they need to be managed, and to use their inherent skill set to take advantage of the situation, that's what we all demand of our athletic coaches, Mm -hmm. but we don't necessarily demand it of our leaders in business or the managers who are deploying our budgets. It's, It's truly astounding. That's the point I was trying to make. Why don't we demand it? I mean, let's look at the vaccine rollout. I'm not going to get into the discussion whether it's good or bad. That's politics. Let's leave it aside. But it's a life and death thing, right? So as one example, why are we not, why does society demand so much of athletes? But we don't seem to have the same demands on businesses who are engaged in life and death situations in many circumstances. I think it has to do to the, the access to the data. Mm-hmm. That on Monday morning, when yeah. you look at your team's performance and you look at the box score and you see which players uh, overperformed, which players underperformed, and you see the trends yeah. in, in this data, even a casual fan can say, I think we're never going to win yeah. until we get a new quarterback or a new pitcher or a new fullback on our football team. And so we see those stats. And we hold our teams accountable and their managers and people. I think in business, we don't have equal access to the same stats and data. So that if, if you are a middle manager yeah. and you're being held accountable to certain outcomes, but you don't know what are the stats, what are the data that are driving that? Yes. And then who are the people who are responsible downstream or yes. upstream that are causing those the stats and data to maybe break down? That I think if we gave access to the data to our people, that they would hold people more accountable. I'm not hitting my budget numbers or my goal and getting my bonus because these people upstream are are failing to do X, Y, or Z. And I think if we had those linkages, that people would hold their coworkers more accountable to, to these things. Now, in my experience, people don't actually want to see the science. Yes. They kind of want the answers. Yeah. So it's it's our job to take this science and data and make it really accessible and consumable for our audience, which is what the box score does in sure. the in the sports page of yeah. your local paper. I wonder if this was how disclosures for investors would evolve over time. Because if investors are owners of a company, which they are, maybe one day we'll be in a situation where as an investor you can log into some terminal somewhere and see how each member of a company is performing at their task. It could happen, right? It certainly could. And I think with the the data and analytics visualization yeah. tools, products like Domo, yes, that give us access to, it actually wouldn't wouldn't be that hard. Now the transparency sure. uh, for public and private companies would need to be discussed because that I, I do think public companies are uh, very protective of of their data and the timing of their release to make sure they're being fair to the markets. But you know, aside from those issues, it, it is certainly conceivable. Yeah, because that would make sense. But of course, it's a long way to go. But let's step back, right? So we talked about some of the things executives could ask themselves to know what they are doing with regards to managing their employees effectively with data. What are some good examples of companies that are at the forefront, non-sports examples, because we've heard a lot of good sports examples. 
Maersk. Oh, Maersk. Okay, yes, the, the, the shipping container Maersk. The shipping container company. They ref now refer to themselves as a logistics company. But yes, you know it because their name is on the side of containers, yeah. ships, and trucks. So AP Moeller Maersk, their founder, was uh, a big fan of data and as well as cognitive and behavioral analytics. And he's now passed away, but since the 70s was managing Maersk through the globalization of, uh, of the world. So a great time to be in shipping was managing their growth with heavy data and analytics. I'll use an example. Everyone can sort of have a romantic vision of a ship's captain. So a ship's captain in 1975 mm -hmm. would push off from port and hopefully show up across the other side of the Atlantic eight to 10 days later, and they would land at port and they would offload their cargo. And the captain would make all of the decisions on the way. And this was pre-satellite communication. It was pre-weather routing. It was yes. pre-containerization of goods. So today, that same ship captain has is being routed from their central location. Mm -hmm. They have perfect satellite communication. They have all of these sensors on the ship, which is a very expensive object. Sure. And these sensors will let you know if the engine is running hot or the oil pressure is out of whack. And all of the cargo is containerized and on some sort of barcode or chip scanning. So the type of person that you need to be a ship captain mm -hmm. in 1975 looked like a CEO. They had to make decisions independently yes. with great risk. Where the, the same ship captain today needs to look more like the concierge at the front of a hotel, yes. which is make sure that you're servicing the ship the crew yeah. and headquarters and do what you're told about hitting your routing and all of your timestamps that you're supposed to hit those spots and giving feedback. So in the last 40 years, Maersk has mapped every position within their company to make sure that they've optimized the perfect personality, cognitive and behavioral profile that's needed to optimize that role with really good performance data. And that's one of the reasons why they've stayed in front of the shipping industry for the last 40 years. That's a very good example. It also raises a very interesting point here. The point I'm going to make now, or at least elaborate on what you've said, doesn't apply to every company, but it will in many cases. The point you made is that previously, because there was so little communication between the ship and a set of central node, the ship captain, for all intents and purposes, had to have many, many skills built into his armor as such and to deploy what was needed. But as we've been able to connect things and build in all these best practices at a central node, the profile and skill set of the captain has changed, right? And become much more specified. Exactly. But now what that means is that when we talk about how data can be used to make employees more effective, it's also changing the type of skills employees need as they have access to different data, right? It, it, it certainly does, and it, it changes, as I pointed out, it changes positions over time through technological innovation and change. In some cases, I mean, the, the example of a ship captain is a pretty good one, but in some cases where everything is automated, everything is managed from a control center, you just need someone to do maintenance and watch what's happening and follow a few orders, right? That's right. That's just some it, examples. In other examples, having access to that data means that employees become more specialized at what they're doing. And, and I think this is the natural 
order. If you look at medicine, in 1950, the number of specialists that you had in medicine was probably one-tenth of what we have today. And each each discipline, each specialization gets more and more refined as they gain more and more knowledge about about their discipline. And no no one person could be like the 1950s general practitioner who was supposed to know a lot about everything. It just yes. it just couldn't happen. You know, so now we have generalists who are primary care physicians and then we have specialists who know a lot. And it's now a team sport. Yeah, it's it's. Because of the way the medical system is set up, where you have access to all these people, you can see a generalist, get a quick referral to a specialist, and the generalist serves sort of a screening role, right? Is that a good way of looking at it? Yes, screening triage. Yeah. Yeah. So this is interesting because data is allowing people to specialize. And do you see this trend across services industries as well? You certainly do. And it, it is probably your higher volume service industries where they have refined roles. Yeah. If you take Walmart, one of the largest employers in the world, yeah. they probably only have 14 jobs. You know, So if you have 1.4 million people and 14 jobs, you can spend a lot of time really refining each of those roles to make sure that the analytics, the profiles, the performance data for those roles really work. Most people don't have that luxury of leverage that, say, Walmart has to optimize performance in each role. So when you say 14 roles, give or take, that's at the shop floor level, not head office and so on. Yeah, I'm not thinking about the logistics. You know, the, so the 2,500 people who run run strategy at Walmart. I'm thinking more about the 1.39 million people who are actually in the stores. So and in because the it's got so few roles and because it can pull together best practices on different stores using data in real time and so on, it can then push these best practices and continuously refine them across these 14 levels. That's right. And it, it may even change culturally from country to country sure. that a floor associate in continental Europe might be different than a floor associate in South America. When you think about data, we always think about how data is going to help employees do their roles better, but we never think about how data is going to change the roles they do in quite significant ways, right? And here's an example where we used a shipping container company where we naturally think about sensors and all kinds of fancy technology for a shipping company. But Walmart, yes, a lot of fancy technology as well, but a lot of it is just about how you engage customers, get stuff onto shelves and so on, right? It's, it's, it's a kind of a mundane role if you think about it, but technology plays such a big role in making them better at these things. It does, and these large volume hires, you brought up cameras, you know, video interviewing and, uh, you know, using video and audio to predict workplace performance is starting to happen. There is a movement, and I, I know one of the big hirers who does this in, in the United States where I am is Delta Airlines. Yeah. They hire, as I understand it, 5,000 flight attendants a year. Wow, and and they're using video interviewing to make sure that they take their 50,000 candidates or, or thereabouts and refines it down to ideally the 5,000 who would be best. And this isn't quite there yet, but it's gaining traction where you do their video responses, their audio responses get measured through AI to determine a workplace performance. Now, there are some cynical people out there that says, yeah, Delta Airline uses this just to make sure they hire the, the most attractive flight sure. attendants. I wasn't even and, thinking about that, but the, yeah, I can see that. 
and listen, I'm not trying to throw shade at Delta. Yeah. I think Delta is actually a, a very well-run organization, yeah. and I think they're trying to use the data to the best of their ability. But the tools aren't quite there yet, but they will be soon, where you will not even need to show up. That yeah. You will be evaluated, assessed, and in, in, in ranked and judged by your video responses, which are actually viewed asymmetrically. That's an interesting prospect for the for the hiring process. So basically, there's a, quite a few insights in there I want to unpack for the audience, right? Firstly, if Delta is doing this, and we're just using Delta as an example for the audience, this could be any company, right? But if Delta is doing this, as you say, they're not relying on one manager to bring his gut feel and review all these videos. They've taken what they think are the best attributes for the best flight attendants, built it into the AI system, which will automatically filter these out, right? And they're, they're hoping that the AI system is able to predict that if my sure. eyes go up and to the right yeah. when I answer a question, is that going to make me a good or bad according to those metrics? I think they know what makes a good flight attendant. Sure. I'm not sure the video technology yet knows Branded, yes. how to assess, say it's me, given my video based on my eye contact or the, the hesitancy or lack thereof of my voice in order to, to really nail the criteria. But even if that's the case, it's only a matter of time before we get there. Right? Technology is always evolving. It is, but there is sort of a, a gaming dynamic yeah. that could happen. I think when you look at scientific tools for hiring, sure. since hiring is high stakes, and it, it could have unintentional uh, adverse impact to protected groups, you want to make sure that it's, one, is valid, that it measures what it says it measures, two, that it's repeatable, yeah. that it on a test retest or interview re-interview it, it does the same thing and lastly that it's fair yes. against protected classes so that we're not unintentionally biasing sure. in the delta case maybe we're unintentionally biasing against men yeah. it would be about time but <laughs> we're unintentionally i'm kidding that was a joke um <laughs> And maybe a bad one, but I, I'm just saying that we could be unintentionally biasing against race, ethnicity, gender, it, yeah. so that you have to really look at, at, at validity, repeatability, yes. and fairness on these high stakes things like hiring. And I don't think that audio and video analysis is quite there. So we have to hold a high standard, but yes, it will get there. But we're already doing this in a sense, right? Because I don't know how it works across every state in the United States, but there are some countries in the world where you look at an employee's credit score before you hire them. And you hope that that credit score is not introducing some bias in the way to science credit, right? It's not an exact science in the way they do this. So we're already doing it in a sense, right? But credit scores are, are insidious. It, and it's unfortunately, credit scores will bring up this issue that we had in the United States, which was called redlining. Yeah. And we would redline areas, uh, cities, and populations. And it was something done by the US government. And I think one of the unintentional consequences of the redlining was you were picking up socioeconomics, which was then therefore picking up race yes. and ethnicity. And if you use credit scores and you use them inappropriately, you might be picking up socioeconomics, which is going to pick up race and ethnicity, and then bias your DEI initiatives you know, unfavorably. Yeah. And that's the wrong thing to do. Yes, but the reason I brought up that example is that that is, I want the audience to understand how bias gets brought into a system. You have to be very careful of building something that doesn't have unintended consequences, right? 
certainly. And it's it's very difficult to be a futurist and think about those unintended consequences. Sometimes they can seem so obvious after the fact. Yes. You look at uh, look at China and their one child policy. Yeah. I, if they could do that again, they'd probably take that one back. Yeah. I mean, that's a good point. The thing is that technology will keep moving forward in a trial and error process, but we have to be cognizant and careful about how we are using that technology and always making sure that we are checking the outcomes, right? And that gets back to performance in business. I think we have to look at performance. You have, you're have you going to look at performance of your hiring system. Yes. Is it biased? You have to look at performance of your teams, of your individuals. And we, we look at these performance systems so we can get these feedback loops because the machine learning, the AI algorithms, you know, the, the, the scientific tools that I talk about in my book, The Science of Dream Teams, it doesn't work without these feedback loops because we're not going to get it right the very first time. But we yes. can learn and improve, which is, you know, the basis of the scientific method. And like I did say, people don't want the scientific method. They really want the answers. Yeah. But as we build these tools, we can give your, your line managers the answers that they're looking for to say, should we pair these two people together for this project or not? So let's assume you went into a company, a large company. Let's assume it's a multinational conglomerate uh, like Ford, for example. Again, I'm not saying Ford's your client, but as an example, how would you go about baselining where they are? And then how would you go about getting them to be effective at using these tools to build teams? What would be the process for a company of that scale? If you had the luxury, you have to start at the C-suite to just make sure there's buy-in. Because if there's, okay. not, if there's not buy-in at the C-suite, so let's assume that there's buy-in at yeah. the C-suite. But you do need to make sure that you get the data model for the entire organization. So everyone in the organization is going to need to be assessed in some capacity, behaviorally, okay. potentially cognitively, each of the roles defined. And we need to know the, the work to be done or the strategy of each, of each department. Once we know this baseline, you can create data models in which to start optimizing these teams, these departments. And once you get the design right of what you're trying to build, yeah. that informs how you hire, where you hire, how much you pay. It informs how you manage people on a day-to-day -day basis. And the whole thing needs to be constantly mapped with diagnostic product to say, if you do the design hire and manage right, yeah. the diagnostic tools will go up and to the right over time. So it sounds as if the very big starting point of this is just collecting that baseline data. How is that done? Is it done electronically? I'm guessing you're not interviewing everyone, right? Yeah, I mean, it depends on the size of the organization. Sure. I think if, if you're looking at companies like Bain, yeah. where their most important assets are, in fact, bipeds, yeah. people who walk in and out of the door, it's worth spending a lot of time on sure. each unit, each person. If you're building Walmart, it's going to have to be done with a much lighter lift. You can't yeah. do 360 degree interviewing on each sure. of the 1.4 million people. So the tools should meet the job. And I do think light assessments on people, uh, things that are light format, you know, less than 10 minutes are going to be the tools for your higher volume people and jobs. Because if it's any more costly than that, they won't do it across the organization and you won't have a complete data model. But it also sounds as if the role of HR would need to change if it adopts this mindset and has these tools and these models and so on, right? Because if I think about how most HR units are run, it's really about risk management, 
legal issues, hiring. It's not really about optimizing employees. Maybe, maybe it's changing, but it sounds as if the role of the HR executive needs to evolve and the tools they have at their disposal. HR was created in the Industrial Revolution yeah. to protect companies against risk. And almost every tool that we've given them has been tactical in nature. Applicant tracking systems, HR information systems, that we haven't given them the tools. But you are starting to see you know, strategic HR positions open up, chief people officers yeah. who report into the C-suite. You're starting yes. to see better toolkits and you're seeing even types change, people operations. You're seeing people who are much more concerned about the analytics of the people in mass, uh, like an operational role, than, uh, than they are about the holiday party or accruing PTO. So the roles have to evolve. And tragically, it's not HR's fault. They're under-budgeted, understaffed, underappreciated, and they have the most deleted email in all of business. We've all deleted an email from <laughs> HR. And it's not fair. Yeah. And we've never given them a proper seat at the table. But they are starting to earn it. And there are enlightened companies that are starting to realize that the talent lever is really the most important lever they have to pull in today's world. Now, what's interesting, when I've spoken to people like Ram Charan and I think Bill Shanninger and Aaron DeSmet, McKinsey Partners, they, they say something very similar, but in a different way, where they say that HR and organizational design comes from the industrial era, whereby companies put employees into slots, but the primary objective was to keep the employee out of the way as the company got the job done. It was to minimize the kind of free thinking from employees. But what's happening now is that the most successful companies have to find ways to get employees to be creative, move out of their places in their org chart, and be pulled together as needed to fix the task at hand. Natural work teams, as they call them, right? Mm -hmm. But that also means that the way you collect data on employees, the way you rank them, the way you categorize them, that's a radical rethinking in the way you just score and rank employees. It's not just once a year you get together, right? I think that that logic, I think it was Ram, Ram Sharan who did say that. It's yeah. like when we were trying to get to Six Sigma outcomes, Yeah. no human can do Six Sigma outcomes. That's a, that's a system. Yeah. So you're building the Toyota production system and you're trying to take people variability out of it. But now yes. today, we're not manufacturing cars like Toyota. Yeah. We're coming up with ideas, software, and yeah. ideas, creative solutions that Uber and the idea that you can create a network of gig workers and completely blow away a hundred year old industry mm -hmm. in a matter of two years, that's coming, like you said, from ideas and creativity and how to deploy these ideas and creativity quickly and efficient as efficiently as you can. But it's it's messy work when you're disrupting industries and the modern organization can't be held to that Six Sigma standard. Now, there will be industries that still do. I hope our planes yeah, remain Six Sigma. And my car. Because, and your self-driving car. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> your soon-to-be self-driving car. You hope those stay at Six Sigma, but you're willing to have your food app be something less as yes. it. But it's also building on this very good point you made. A variability between employees is a good thing if you know how to use that variability. And that's where that idea of that coach comes in. Right? You gotta know what that variability is, how it's a strength, how it's a weakness, and when to play it, right? It's not about stamping it out. And that's right. That's, that's right. a key thing. I mean, I, you know, I want everyone listening just to know that 
variability in performance, variability in behavior is a good thing if you know the employee, you know how to use it, and you know how it benefits the team and when it doesn't benefit the team. And I think that's why sports is such uh, an interesting analogy for business yeah. is because sport always deals with these matchups. Yeah. In science, team A beats team B, team B beats team C, you're like A should then beat C. Yeah. And you go, that doesn't work in sport. Doesn't work you in know? sports. And it's about matchups. And the equivalent in matchup in sport is how did your strategy change? This quarter, your strategy may have been A. Well, it turns out, we had a pandemic over the last four quarters, five quarters, a lot of our strategies just changed. And we had to figure out our new matchups and we had to deploy human capital and change human capital and strategies in ways that were incredibly fast. 40 million people in North America were laid off in six weeks. That required a new matchup. So I think as leaders and as consultants in this space, Like you said, we want that variability. We want to make sure that we respond to these different challenges and strategy and deploy our human capital. I think the companies that are moving their financial capital and human capital quickly and efficiently, Mm -hmm. you know, so that they can feed, they can feed the the areas of their company that are growing. Those are going to be the, the organizations of the future. Yeah. And, you know, building on that, Having all that data is one thing, right? But if you look at a sports team, right? Let's assume it's cricket, American football, whatever it is, right? One of the most exciting things as a fan is to watch that moment when they announce which team members are going to be fielded in that match. And it's, it's a given for us that if you're playing a different opponent, even if it's two days later, you could see a radically different team fielded, right? That's expected. Because you need to play a team or field a team that's going to be able to neutralize the strengths of the team you're playing on that day. But in business, we tend to not think about our teams like that. If we have a certain hierarchy, that's the hierarchy we field month after month after month after month. It's not as if we, we, are, we are so comfortable yet being able to change our teams as the situation calls for it. And I think that's one of the mindset changes managers and leaders will need to take. It's about putting the best team forward, not just saying they do that, but continuously refining and updating teams as the situation calls for it. And I don't think we are there yet. Michael, I think there are certain departments that are ahead yeah. in this. I do think technology teams, I do think uh, some product development teams mm-hmm. where they are intentionally keeping their team size small yeah. and they have these teams work more autonomously. They're, it's not as structured and that they're working across the organization. They're like almost growth hacking teams or tech teams that they can work on one project for five weeks yeah, and then they reassemble and, or maybe it is the same team and then work on another project for five weeks and the work is different. So they reorganize internally according to their strengths. And I think it's a much more fluid and fungible situation. We still have room to go. But I, I would agree with you that most businesses are very rigid, very hierarchical, and don't respond on the talent side as quickly as our sports teams. And we're speaking to Sarah Elch, she's actually a Bain partner who, who leads this whole thinking and organizational design. And I remember she was telling me one of her big roles is taking the principles of agile 
product development and scrum teams from the tech space, which is some, similar to what you're saying, right? And teaching companies how to use those principles about knowing how to deploy the best team in a lean way and reconstituting team members. So you're right. There are parts of the world that are doing it very well. And I think the results speak for themselves when you look at the valuation of the tech companies, right? They're doing pretty well. I would love to give credit to their yeah. talent strategy, and some of it is that. But the valuations, unfortunately, are usually disconnected from that. It seems like the, the valuations are overpaying for growth at the moment, and, that, and the tech companies are having that growth. But I think your friend at Bain Sarah is onto something. Yeah. Sarah Elk, she's onto something. We can learn a lot from, from agile development. And that's what I was referring to with these sort of small group, fixed size teams that have determined in the technology space that a seven person team is the ideal size. So you can build anything you want as long as it's on a seven person team. <laughs> Mike, thank you so much for that fascinating discussion. I really enjoyed it. It's, it's amazing how many exciting things are happening as of the intersection of tech and, for lack of a better word, talent development. It is incredible. Michael, thank you for having me. It was always a pleasure to talk about talent optimization and how it fits into our world. Take care, Mike. Have a good day. You too. Enjoy. Bye-bye. And that's it for today's episode. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I enjoyed doing the episode. Finally, I want you to remember that the only way to get access to our special offers, the only way to get our special pricing, and the only way to get samples of our content is to join the list on firmsconsulting.com. It's the only way also to get access to our unique advanced content that we make available to insiders. So if you want to get a sneak peek of things, test it out, see what's in there, this is the place to go. And finally, I want to thank you again for making us one of the largest podcast channels around the world for careers and for the 2 million downloads and counting.